the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin Engineering. Today we're going to spend some time talking about the uh, Communist Chinese Party brokering a diplomatic deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. How meaningful is that? And in light of end times events... What does this mean? Well, the meaning of the Silicon Valley bank bailout, and yes, I'm using that word. It might be a bit premature. We'll talk about that as well as the day's headlines. We'll also talk with Barb, let's see, Raveling. That's what it is, Raveling. Uh, She's the author of Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating, 100 Renewing Exercises to Help You Break Free from the Control of Food. And she uh, writes about renewing the mind. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. And Coach Kennedy He has been officially reinstated. This uh, whole controversy began in 2015 when Bremerton High School said goodbye because he had chosen to pray on his own at the 50-yard line after games, was joined occasionally by students and uh, parents in the stands and other team members and so on. Anyway, he has been reinstated as the Supreme Court said he must, and that is... um, was this month, the 15th of this month, I believe, was the, uh, the deadline. Sam, what are you eating? That looks really good. Is it a pretzel? Yeah, don't mind me. I'll just do my job in here quietly watching you chew on. It's a bagel, he says. Looks really good. Anyway, I had lunch. I guess it's that uh, interview I'm doing later on emotional eating. (laughs) Watching you eat. I'm not in the least bit hungry. but That looks really good. Anyway, last week's diplomatic breakthrough between Saudi Arabia and Iran doesn't herald a new era of peace in the Middle East, but it does offer... Something of a glimpse of the region's potential future as America fumbles and China makes continued inroads in its effort to reshape global diplomacy in favor of a web linking other techno totalitarian regimes. So, again, it's not a breakthrough that necessarily tells us that peace in the Middle East is about to break out. But it does tell us a great deal about the absence of American leadership and the um, and China moving into that void. Well, the deal, it was announced at a Beijing press event featuring the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia and Iran with China's top diplomat between them was the result of two years of secret talks brokered by Oman, Iraq and China. It gives a two month probationary period of sorts uh, during which Tehran and Riyadh are going to build toward fully reestablishing an official diplomatic relationship that ruptured in 2016 And that was after protesters stormed the Saudi embassy in Iran. Now, the announcement was light on specifics, but each regional giant will soon reopen its embassy in the other's capital. And while its uh, success is hardly a a given, uh, uh, the significant developments might follow what was announced last week. The Iran-Saudi proxy war in Yemen, which has uh, dropped off over the past year, could officially come to a close if the two powers really do advance their diplomatic relationship. Um, Bashar al-Assad, who is a Syrian butcher, uh, a key Iranian client, 
might be bought uh, in from the cold and deemed a legitimate actor. Twelve years into his run with the largest uh, charnel house in the world. Now, Saudi's potential addition to the Abraham Accords, which has remained elusive. And keep in mind, Saudi Arabia is the closest ally of the United States in the region. Well, their potential addition to the Abraham Accords, which has remained elusive, will become an even less likely prospect as the kingdom weighs its options and further explores the possibility of bypassing America's diplomatic architecture in the region. That That's a mixed bag, but some say that the stability that might follow this deal is worthwhile. There's ample reason for skepticism about that outlook, but this is where things stand at the moment. Now, the deal gives the Iranian regime breathing room. It's staring down the existential threat at home of a savvy people that knows uh, it can do a lot better than Islamist dictatorship. And it limits Israel's military options, potentially taking a possible partner in a, in a um, strike uh, with a, uh, of a, an illicit nuclear facility out of the picture. Meanwhile, the threat of Iranian uranium enrichment increases, which undermines deterrence and makes a destabilizing breakthrough ever more likely. Well, long term, though, China's growing clout is the most worrying aspect. And I think that really is the main issue in this development. General Secretary Xi has clearly made his country's overtures to the region a key priority, visiting Saudi Arabia last December, inviting the Iranian president to Beijing earlier this year. Um, A new player in the region, China can learn on its um, uh, rather lean on its status as the two countries largest trade partner to play on each side in a way that America just cannot. There are authoritarian affinities that are there as well. The Saudis, as the Iranians, are willing to engage a regime that comes um, bearing gifts without complaints about human rights. And while the kingdom and the Islamic Republic have waged a shadow conflict against each other, they have more things in common than the recent past suggests. Both have extradition agreements with China. Both purchase Chinese surveillance technology. Both have an interest in seeking external support to keep domestic political opponents down. Whether or not this agreement survives, it sets down an ominous marker. Now, China hasn't replaced the United States as the region's preeminent external security player for all of this administration's work to undermine the U.S.-Saudi alliance and to pull back America's military presence from the Middle East. The security architecture in place is too massive for any White House to dismantle in just four years. Now, this agreement was made possible in part by President President Biden's, it's not O'Biden, it's just Biden, uh, President Biden's recent neglect of Washington's longstanding work uh, to keep Riyadh uh, on um, on our side and um, an unedifying business, but one that has brought America strategic advantages. So this is a very interesting development, this alliance uh, that was brokered by China. We're going to continue to take a look at that in just a moment, but we do need to take a break. We'll also take a look at what's happening with the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and whether or not there was a bailout that the president assures us will not uh, include any U.S. taxpayer dollars. That and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, we were talking about the uh, Chinese Communist Party brokered diplomatic deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I appreciated a column written by Seth Fransman, who um, wrote about uh, who the winners and losers are in the Iran-Saudi uh, deal. 
And he writes that new relations between the two countries have the potential to reshape the region. They also have the potential to maintain processes that have been existed for decades. A shift in the U.S. role in the region from countering terrorism after 9-11 to countering peer rivals such as China and Russia has meant the region is also rewriting its ties with Washington and Beijing. The looming crisis of an Iranian nuclear weapon plays into the relevance of these new ties. In addition, new Saudi-Iran ties could reduce conflict in Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq and Syria. Are there clear winners and losers out of the deal or uh, is it more nuanced? Well, here's what um, uh, what he says are the three questions to ask about what uh, the CCP has brokered. Much of the discussion, well, loss of U.S. influence is the first question. Much of the discussion of the new Iran-Saudi ties have been focused on the perceived loss of U.S. influence. This argument posits that China was able to swoop into the Middle East and broker Iran-Saudi ties at the expense of U.S. interests and influence. But he goes on to say the reality is more complex. U.S.-Saudi ties go back a whole century. For much of the Cold War, Saudi Arabia was a key pillar of U.S. relations in the region and a stable one at that. Whereas other countries like Iran shifted ruling regimes and Iraq turned against the U.S. and invaded Kuwait in 1990, Saudi Arabia was a mainstay. The U.S. also worked with Riyadh during the conflict in Afghanistan when the U.S. was close to Pakistan and arming Mujahideen. Ties with Saudi Arabia shift uh, shifted a bit over the years, especially with concerns that Riyadh was continuing to enable extremist ideology. However, Saudi Arabia shifted its policy slowly after 9-11 and the rise of the Mohammed bin Salman has reshaped perceptions of Riyadh and uh, set it on a more independent course in foreign policy. This is typical of other countries that have historic ties to the U.S. Other examples are Turkey and Gutter. Every country makes its own policies, and it's hard to read the Saudi outreach to Iran as a blow to the U.S. when many have seen Riyadh's other policies as drifting away from the U.S. orbit over the last years. For instance, after the Iranian attack Uh, In 2019, the U.S. didn't support a Saudi response. There have been calls in the West to stop arming arming Saudi Arabia during the war with Yemen. As well, Riyadh's decision to break ties with Qatar in 2017 was seen as controversial. This means that the latest decision by Saudi Arabia to renew ties with Iran may not be related to U.S. policy at all. The U.S. didn't demand Saudi Arabia break ties with Iran in the first place. The U.S. has a strategic alliance with Qatar, which in turn has uh, close ties with Iran, as does Turkey, which is a NATO member. Saudi Arabia is merely doing what other U.S. partners have done. The other question, is this a win for China? And he writes, last year, Iran and China implemented a 25-year deal to improve ties. China has not only expanded ties with Iran. In December of 2022, China also committed to a five-year plan with six Gulf countries, China's Xi Jinping met with Gulf leaders in 2022 as well as uh, as well rather in a meeting hosted by Saudi Arabia. China's outreach in the Gulf and in Iran goes back years. This comes amid a US viewing China and Russia as near peer rivals uh, with Washington which Washington uh, may have to confront. The more China has partners uh, partnerships in the Gulf, the more the US has warned countries that those partners could impact some level of ties with the U.S. over sensitive issues, such as countries that want to acquire F-35s. China has clearly sought to expand its relationship in the region, and the decision by Iran and Saudi Arabia to work with China on normalization with each other is part of China becoming a diplomatic broker in the region. 
though this is a win for China. It was also a natural country to host this final step. Iran and Saudi Arabia already held talks in Baghdad about reconciliation, talks that began in 2021 and continued off and on with some stalls in 2022. Overall, the trajectory was clear. Saudi Arabia has had also reconciled with Gutter early 2021 and was rumored to be considering closer ties with Israel, a slow process that began back in 2015. The train was on the tracks for Saudi-Iran ties. All it needed was a bit of a push, which China gave. And the third question, does Israel lose out? Well, the potential for better Israeli-Saudi ties has been a constant issue of speculation. Days before the Saudi-Iran deal was announced, there were reports in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times about Riyadh seeking security pledges from Washington as part of some kind of upgrade of ties with Israel. Well, clearly, Saudi Arabia has been working on multiple policy tracks, China, Russia, the U.S., and potentially Israel, all part of Riyadh's new positioning of a more complex independent policy. It's unlikely that Iran ties will necessarily impact Israel negatively. Saudi Arabia has interests in Yemen and Lebanon, as well as in Syria and Iraq. In many ways, Saudi Arabia's interests dovetail with Israel's in terms of stability and not wanting Iran's militias or proxies running those countries. Now, keep in mind, Iran has made it very clear they want to see the total annihilation of Israel. So that's in the background as well. Now, the Gulf in general is moving to reconcile with Syria, which can reduce chaos in the region. The era of war that defined the period after the the Arab Spring and the era of conflict that began decades ago with the rise of extremists appears to be coming to some kind of close. Well, the shifts in the Gulf are important for uh, for this to happen. Extremist groups have one by one been rejected by most Gulf states, except for Gutter. There's less funding for these groups as uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been mostly defeated, mostly, but not entirely. Stability and state-to-state relations are part of the new era. This is underpinned by big country politics and also deals that, that uh, Israel has played a, a role in, such as the Negev summit, the I2U2 and the Abraham Accords. Iran-Saudi ties can be viewed as part of that larger process of diplomacy. As such, Israel might not uh, lose out. Uh, Saudi Arabia can now articulate its concerns to Iran through diplomacy rather than being at loggerheads. Countries tend to listen more than uh, they have a way of uh, speaking and engaging with each other. Rather than portraying each other as enemies, new ties could reduce the Iranian threats. Well, again, in, in light of what the scripture says is going to happen, I think it's important to consider that ultimately all the nations will turn against Israel and the relationship between Russia and China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and particularly Iran, is of great significance. Well, the other big issue that uh, broke over the weekend, really on Friday, was the, um, uh, the well, before I, I guess before I move on to that, I, yeah, I'll, I'll move on to that, was the announcement that the, um, uh, one of the banks was uh, not was failing and was not going to be able to continue. Well, the president, he uh, gave a short speech on the, well this morning to address the collapse of two major banks. 
uh, the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and stated, our banking system is safe, your deposits are safe, end quote. Well, the California-based Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by the Fed, uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation on Friday. And on Sunday, the FDIC took control of the New York-based Signature Bank after it was uh, closed by state regulators. Well, on Sunday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell, and FDIC Chairman Martin uh, Grunberg, they released a statement that, in part, said the following. After receiving a recommendation from the boards of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and consulting with the president, Secretary Yellen approved actions enabling the FDIC to complete its resolution of Silicon Valley Bank, Santa Clara, California, in a manner that uh, fully protects all depositors. Depositors will have access to all of their money starting Monday, March 13th. No losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. We also announced a similar um, systemic risk exception for Signature Bank, New York, New York, which was closed today by its state chartering authority. All depositors in of this institution will be made whole. As with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank, no losses will be borne by the taxpayer, end quote. And while the resolution announced by Yellen, Powell and Grunberg said that their solution fully protects all depositors and that depositors will have access to all of their money, the FDIC, you might recall, only guarantees deposits up to $250,000 and not over that level. Deposit insurance guarantees repayments of, de- of uh, deposits at a bank up to the insured limit of $250,000, says the report by the Congressional Research Service. It is intended to prevent bank runs and to reduce the risk of systematic failure of the banking system, the CRS said. Uh, banks pay deposit insurance premiums to the FDIC, which maintains the uh, uh, deposit Insurance Fund, or the DIF, to meet its obligations of the insuring deposits and uh, resolving uh, failed banks. Well, in his address on Monday, the president indicated that all of the money for bailing out these uh, two failed banks will come from the uh, DIF. No losses will be borne by taxpayers. Uh, he uh, said a number of things. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. I want to, uh, to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money. Second, the president said the management of these banks will be fired if the bank is taken over by FDIC. The people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. Uh, they knowingly took a risk. And when uh, risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. Fourth, the president said there are important questions of how these banks got into these circumstances in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. And finally, the president said we must reduce the risks of this happening again during the Biden Um, The Obama Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. The bottom line is this. The president concluded Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, uh, the six hundred and twenty billion a dollar hole in the banking sector and more. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In case you missed it, it was just announced Fish Fest 2023, August 19th. 
Our sister station, 1041 The Fish, has announced the return of Fish Fest to the Salem Riverfront Park Amphitheater Saturday, August 19th with a legendary double headliner, Newsboys and Stephen Curtis Chapman, plus Andrew Ripp, Blessing Offer, and Cochran and Company, backed by popular demand. Don't miss the biggest event of the summer, music, food, fun, fellowship, all at Fish Fest 23. Tickets go on sale this Monday, March 13th. That would be today. Um, at fishportland.com. It's going to be quite a quite an event. We've been talking about the uh, SVB, the bank collapse. Uh, the fallout has pretty much shined a spotlight on $620 billion hole in the banking sector. Uh, and so writes Ryan King that the fallout from the Silicon Valley bank collapse has directed attention to a $620 billion uh, ticking time bomb in the banking system that has the uh, the potential to spell doom for the financial system. That's the extreme uh, possibility. SVB's meltdown was partly caused by a chasm between its assets and what they were worth in the market. Eventually, the bank sold some of those assets, spooking investors and triggering a run on the bank. But SVB isn't alone, as banks across the United States are sitting on a $620 billion in unrealized potential losses at the end of last year, per the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Well, that hole illustrates uh, why Authorities at the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department and the FDIC were so eager to stave off a contagion or panic uh, spread from the um, the bank's demise across the banking sector. The reason for this predicament is that banks compiled a plethora. That's his word. Plethora of bonds and treasuries during times when interest rates were hovering near zero. But now the Federal Reserve has begun jacking up the rates in an effort to combat inflation, which has caused many of these assets to plunge in value. This is because the higher interest rates mean that new bonds accrue higher rates of returns for investors. As a result, older bonds have completely um, have comparatively lower rates of return, rendering them less desirable for investors and therefore triggering a plunge in the value of older assets. And then uh, the collapse is, uh, as one uh, writer, Steve Moore, put it, is only the tip of the iceberg under the uh, the president's spending policies. The economists are warning. And he writes, uh, Chief Economist of Freedom Work, Steve Moore, says inflation, government borrowing and woke priorities put banks in jeopardy. The former Trump White House advisor and chief economist at Freedom Works uh, says this. I agree with the president that we don't have an overall banking crisis. That's good news. But he goes on, the system is sound, but I do think you have a lot of major banks that are in some trouble. The SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, may just be the tip of the iceberg here. And I think it's important for people to understand how this potential banking crisis happened. It's not because there aren't enough bank regulators, as Biden tried to say. It's because of the massive inflation and the trillions and trillions of dollars of borrowing that the federal government has done this um, uh, that has put our financial system in great jeopardy and great peril. You can't just keep doing this month after month, year after year, borrowing trillions and trillions of dollars. And so what happened because of the uh, spending and debt policies is that not only did the inflation go up, but interest rates have gone up as well. The Fed has uh, had to raise interest rates eight or nine times and they're um, talking about uh, more interest rate increases to come. And that caused a lot of um, financial problems for those big banks as the interest rates rise. And then David uh, Bashan, he writes the real reason the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. And, of course, there was a second bank that we learned about on Sunday. He writes that the fall of Silicon Valley Bank's 
should not be minimized, even by those of us who believe uh, contagion will uh, uh, prove limited or not existent. Idiosyncratic events like this still have um, uh, knock on. Um, I, I got kind of a blocked on this uh, article here. Uh, there's part of what has happened in Silicon Valley Bank that could only happen to a Silicon Valley bank. But there are other elements hardly as isolated. A little unpacking is in order, he writes. We now know the uh, the catalyst that set this chain of events in motion. Moody's reportedly responding to the the mark to market losses and the value of SBB's bond portfolio had notified the bank of a pending credit downgrade. In response to that news, the bank began a mad dash search to raise equity capital. But when the word hit the street that SVB was attempting to rush capital uh, uh, raised, depositors began their own mad dash of withdrawing money. This is the first truly idiosyncratic part of the story. The depositors in question were almost entirely startups, and they were being encouraged in this bank run fueling activity by their capital partners, namely the who's who of Silicon Valley venture capital funds. So the deposit base that SVP lived off um, lived off of began eroding quickly, and any hope that they would raise equity capital was a fantasy. Part of the bank's plan to limit the impact of the Moody's downgrade was to raise liquidity with a sale of assets SVB held on its balance sheet. The bank initially sold more than $20 billion of bonds, but did so at a $1.8 billion loss. The bonds had been purchased in a, a lower rate environment. The present higher rate environment had caused downward a pressure on the marketable value of those bonds, and that downward pressure translated to realized losses in this sale. So far, so not uh, good, but certainly not fatal. Anyone holding bonds purchased at 2% yields is underwater on the value, but there is no credit impairment whatsoever, and holding to maturity generates a return of par value. Needing to raise capital to deal with some funding issues, only to lose depositors at the word of your needing to raise capital, and in turn, losing the ability to raise capital at word of losing depositors is obviously a vicious cycle. It can only be offset by one thing, an anecdote that is truthful, not hopeful. The SVB's case... Um, no such antidote was forthcoming. Its bond portfolio held a larger share of long-dated, therefore underwater maturities than expected. Worse, there appears to have been no hedges on the books whatsoever. No interest rate swaps uh, to hedge that rate risk they uh, were clearly carrying. The duration on the uh, the hedged and unhedged portfolio was the same. And it goes on uh, from there. The Silicon Valley Bank appears to be the depositor's haven of the shiny objects I've been bemoaning for three years, he writes. Crypto, tech startups, SPACs, IPOs of companies not yet profitable. We are talking about a buffet of shiny object depositors. And while 2022 decimated their equity value in the marketplace, apparently the actual cash deposit level of these overcapitalized shiny objects, as he puts it, was never considered until it began eroding at the speed of light. And here we are. And then, um, let's see, Craig Torres and Christopher Coden write on the Fed's new backstop shields banks from the $300 billion losses, which you've kind of already uh, uh, touched on, but I especially appreciate it. And let me see if I can find uh, Charlie Payne. Charles Payne uh, makes the point that the president uh, said to taxpayers that, you know, you're, um, the taxpayers are not going to foot the bill. The, the money will come from fees paid into the banking uh, fund, um, 
But he makes the point, first and foremost, for me, that was a bailout of the Silicon Valley, not Silicon Valley Bank but of Silicon Valley in general. And everyone needs to be clear of that. This was not a bailout of hardworking Americans with small accounts. This was a bank that only catered, for the most part, to Silicon Valley and their customers. So how did Silicon Valley Bank get so big? All the money that uh, cascaded into our economy at the beginning of the pandemic helped to spur over a 1,000 IPOs, initial public offerings, Payne says. And he said 59% of those IPOs were special purpose acquisition companies. He said 90% of the SPACs um, were were pure. Well, he put it in one way that I wouldn't, but he said they were not really worth uh, their salt. Payne said 90%. The others all went, uh, went out overvalued. Everyone who bought them at the IPO price, every American is losing money right now, even before this crisis. In the meantime, though, all that uh, all that money went to Silicon Valley Bank. Their deposits went up 300 percent to 200 billion dollars. The average bank over that same frame, their deposits went up 35 percent. So they're living large and having a great time. But then inflation and interest rates. Well, we'll leave it at that. But um, just a little bit of what's being said about SPV and the other bank defaulting uh, just over the weekend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. When we come back, we'll look at some of the headline news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, once again, KPDQ sister station The Fish is presenting Christian music artist Torin Wells' Joy in the Morning tour with special guest Aaron Cole and Lakewood Music. That's coming up Saturday, April the 22nd at the Elsinore Theater in Salem. Torn Wells' High Energy Show will feature his uh, hits and music from his new album. Tickets go on sale Monday, March the... Well, actually, they've been on sale. They're on sale. You can get all the important details at kpdq.com. Again, that concert coming up April 22nd. That's a Saturday in Salem. Well, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, the lawmakers slammed a bill that would create a thought crime database of alleged biased incidents. Doesn't really sound much like America, but I can think of a couple of uh, nations it sounds like. Not worth it. The St. Louis homicide detective blew the whistle on a Soros-backed DA's concerted effort to break down the system. And in a bad idea, Newsom's uh, California pushed billions in reparations payments as the state faces a budget deficit disaster. Speaking of disastrous, a giant seaweed bloom so large it can be seen from outer space may be headed toward Florida's Gulf Coast. The sargassum um, bloom at around 5,000 miles wide is twice as wide as the United States and is believed to be the largest in history, at least known history, drifting between the Atlantic coast of Africa and the Gulf Coast of Mexico. The thick mat of algae can provide a habitat for marine life and absorb carbon dioxide. However, the giant bloom can have disastrous consequences as it gets closer to the shore. Coral, for instance, can be deprived of sunlight. As the seaweed decomposes, it can release hydrogen sulfide, negatively impact the air and water, and cause respiratory problems for people in the surrounding area. It's being watched. Barricaded in, the Native American tribe barricading dozens of Wisconsin families in their homes over a legal dispute regarding road infrastructure has accepted hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding. In late January, the uh, Lac du Flambeau, a band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians, a tribe with 
3,400 members and 86,600 acres of reservation property in northern Wisconsin initiated a blockade of several roads that cut through its property, but which represent the only exit for nearby residents. Well, the drastic action came after the tribe's negotiations with local property owners on new right-of-way agreements for the road's deterioration um, were not reached. On security risks, China's uh, quiet land grab is threatening our most valuable resource, observers say. And preaching to the choir, Rain Wilson calls out anti-Christian bias in Hollywood after the Last of Us episode. Truth about Marxism, NBC anchor Chuck Todd claims government uh, Governor DeSantis is politicizing education by teaching kids the evils of communism. And Steve Hilton says the Biden's border crisis is emboldening drug cartels. Not actually helping, a drug counselor says activists are planting empty tents here in Portland to encourage homelessness. A Democrat accuses Twitter files journalists of endangering lives by exposing the truth about censorship. Representative Stacey Plaskett of Democrat from the Virgin Islands ripped into Matt Tybee and Michael Schellenberger during a Thursday hearing on the Twitter files, accusing the pair of journalists of endangering the lives of Twitter employees by exposing how the social media platform partnered with various federal agencies to censor disfavored political views. Plaskett insisted that there was no real evidence of coordination between Twitter and the federal government and argued that the hundreds of emails revealed by Schellenberger and Tybee are simply evidence of benign content moderation efforts. Democrat Representative Sylvia Garcia attempted to get Twitter files journalists to reveal their sources and then got upset when they refused. The representative was accused of badgering journalists, uh, the same, Matt Tybee, into revealing a source on Thursday during the heated House Judiciary Committee hearing on the Twitter files. A Mexican drug cartel left a letter apologizing for abducting and killing Americans. The letter, claiming to be from the Mexican drug cartel, blamed for abducting four Americans and killing two of them, condemned the violence and said the gang turned over to authorities its own members who were responsible. In a letter, the Scorpions fraction of the Gulf cartel apologized to residents of Matamoros, where the Americans were kidnapped, the Mexican woman who died in the cartel shootout, and the four Americans and their families. Drug cartels have been known to issue communiques to intimidate rivals and authorities, but also at times like these to do some public relations work to try to smooth over situations that could affect their business. And there were calls for them to be labeled terrorists and to root them out in Congress. President Biden's $6.9 trillion budget proposal provides raises for government employees while skyrocketing taxes are also proposed. The president's um, on Thursday released the $6.8 trillion budget that puts higher taxes on the rich, targets corporations, and gives a huge injection of funding for social programs such as child care and paid family leave. There are also billions set aside for the 5.2 percent uh, pay raise for federal workers, support for refugees, more offshore wind farms, and a $25 billion investment in border security. A former NFL quarterback turned activist, Colin uh, Kaepernick, he bashed his white, ha- white adoptive parents. The former NFL quarterback accused his, uh, his adoptive parents of perpetuating racism in an interview that aired Thursday. The former football player recalled disagreements with his parents that he attributed to racism, calling his upbringing, upbringing problematic. He illustrated one specific example of this um, in the novel depicting a fight he had with his parents during a high school over his hairstyle. He wanted cornrows. They did not. The U.S. put more sanctions on Chinese companies for 
aiding Iranian drone efforts. The U.S. on Thursday imposed sanctions on a Chinese-based network over accusations it has shipped uh, aeros- uh, aerospace parts to an Iranian company involved in the production of drones that Tehran has used to attack oil tankers and exported to Russia. Visa and MasterCard, they've stopped a program to categorize gun purchases differently after pushback. Visa and MasterCard paused their their decision to start categorizing purchases at gun shops, a significant win for conservative groups and Second Amendment advocates who felt that tracking gun shop purchases would inadvertently discriminate against legal firearms purchases. After Visa and MasterCard announced their plans to implement a separate merchant category code for gun shop purchases, the payment networks got significant pushback from the gun lobby as well as conservative politicians. A group of 24 GOP state attorneys general um, wrote a letter to the payment networks threatening legal action against Visa and MasterCard if they moved forward with their plan. Democrats assert their economic policies have benefited the U.S. The Wall Street Journal reports that stocks have dropped this week as investors rethink their expectations for interest rates, with many traders growing increasingly convinced that the Fed will push rates higher than previously expected and keep them there for longer. Stocks fell on Tuesday after Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the central bank is prepared to quicken the pace of interest rate increases if warranted. North Korea is undergoing war preparation drills and launched additional missiles near South Korea. Uh, Kim Jong-un supervised a frontline artillery drill simulating an attack on an unspecified South Korean airfield as he called for his troops to sharpen their combat readiness in the face of his rivals' frantic war preparation moves, end quote. Well, the North Korean uh, report came a day after South Korea's military detected the North firing at least one short-range ballistic missile toward the sea, from a site near the western coastal city of Nampo. The launch came as South Korea and the United States prepared to kick off their biggest combined military training exercise in years to counter the growing threat of Kim's nuclear arsenal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. And in our next hour, a conversation with... Um, Barb Raveling, she's the author of Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating. We'll also take a look at Coach Kennedy, who has been officially reinstated in Bremerton at the high school. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, a conversation with Barb Raveling. Raveling. I'll get it right before she joins me. Her book, Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating, 100 Renewing Exercises to Help You Break Free from the Control of Food. She focuses on renewing the mind. It's a it's a great resource. Anyway, she's coming up in our next couple of segments. And we'll also take a look at Coach Kennedy, who was from Bremerton High School, banned uh, the Supreme Court ruled, and he has been reinstated. We'll bring you the latest on what's happening in his case. We're continuing to look at some of the day's headlines. Over 1,000 migrants stormed the uh, port of entry at Pasco del Norte. A massive group of 1,000 rushed the, uh, uh, the area to enter along the U.S.-Mexico border between Texas and Chihuahua State on Sunday in an attempt to enter the United States, according to a video posted on social media. Uh, when asked, uh, we were told that they were um, told that they could simply walk into the United States, and therefore they pushed aside the Mexican officials in order to do just that at that port of entry as well as several others. Stanford Law students and the DEI dean heckled a guest-speaking judge. 
Stanford University has apologized to a Trump-appointed judge who faced an embarrassing protest by a woke student mob joined by the school's dean of equity after he was invited to speak at the college's law school. Judge Kyle Duncan from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals was ambushed by Associate Dean in Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, Tieran Steinbach, during a discussion on Thursday. Well, it was hardly a discussion. Steinbach, a former ACLU attorney who um, previously defended free speech, initially claimed Duncan had a right to express his views, but she then launched into an impassioned six-minute speech herself, which she had written down condemning his life's work. So she came prepared to contradict herself. The NYPD uh, exodus continues with a record-breaking number of departures in the city. Jane Fonda implies that pro-life Republicans should be murdered. She went on The View Friday and appeared to suggest that murder was an appropriate response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And when one of the co-hosts said the actress was just kidding, Fonda didn't give them an answer. Mexican President Obrador has launched an information campaign against U.S. Republicans. The Mexican president um, launched the campaign in the U.S. against uh, the GOP, telling Mexicans and Hispanics not to vote for them unless U.S. lawmakers change their treatment of Mexico. An apparent threat of election interference by the head of state in response to U.S. calls for action against cartels smuggling fentanyl across the border. The Kentucky Senate passed a bill banning public drag performances, particularly in the presence of children. The Kentucky Senate passed the bill that would ban drag performances on public property or in front of children, sending the legislation to the state house. The legislation would prohibit any individual in the state from engaging in an adult performance on a publicly owned property primarily targeting libraries or at a place where they know or should know someone under 18 uh, could see it. The definition also includes a live performance involving male and female inter impersonators rather who provide entertainment appealing to a prurient interests without uh, serious literary, artistic, political or scientific value. Eric Swalwell is hinting at borrowing Fox News from military personnel a Congressman Swalwell suggested on Saturday that despite not wanting to get in the business of telling troops what they can and cannot watch, he might be open to banning Fox News on military installations. RNC Research responded, Nothing makes our troops feel more like home than their access to American television programming and a popular channel like Fox News. Um, uh, we need to take a look at how Fox is being broadcast to our troops, suggesting perhaps not allowing it to happen. The U.K. government plans to spend an additional $6 billion in military spending. And on federal tax cheats, some 42,000 federal employees have repeatedly failed to file tax returns. Notes a recent report from the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. Make daylight great again? One of the issues that the vast majority of Americans agree on is the frustration over having to change our clock twice a year, including this past weekend for daylight saving time. Most Americans want to stop this biannual clock-changing dance. The Republic of Murderland, Maryland Assembly Democrat Delegate Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Crutchfield, has introduced a bill dubbed the Youth Accountability and Safety Act, which would ban anyone under the age of 25 from being charged with first-degree murder. Crutchfield is not alone in her legal views, as several others have gotten on board her train of uh, to murderland, as they're referring to it. According to the proposed legislation, anyone under the age of 25 who happens to murder someone while committing another crime, such as rape, robbery, carjacking, could not be charged with first-degree murder, which in Maryland carries a life sentence without the possibility of parole. 
House Democrats and the GOP voted unanimously to declassify COVID origins intel. They sent the bill to President Biden. Payrolls rose 311,000 in February, more than expected, showing solid growth. House Democrats voted against a bill to classify fentanyl as a Schedule One drug while thousands die from overdoses. And Mexico's president says fentanyl is a U.S. problem caused by American social decay. New York prosecutors signal Trump may face criminal charges from the Stormy Daniels scandal. And the Senate confirmed Danny Werfel to lead the IRS in a bipartisan vote. California County tracked a churchgoer's phone location data to enforce COVID lockdowns. And nearly 6,000 schools across America require teachers and faculty to hide children's gender identity and transition from their parents. Require. A major new study shows exercise to be 1.5 times more effective at treating depression and anxiety than medication and counseling. President Biden's war on oil. On Sunday, the administration announced that it's banning future fossil fuel drilling on 16 million acres of the National Petroleum Research in northern Alaska. That includes a three million acre region of the Beaufort Sea in the Arctic Ocean. The administration boasted that Biden's economic agenda has put the United States back on track to reach its climate goals for the 2030 and 2050 uh, goal, all while reducing America's reliance on oil. Oil. In reality, this is a, the latest move by the ongoing war on fossil fuels, but with an important caveat. This was likely an effort to deflect criticism from climate activists of Biden's decision on Monday to greenlight in the northern Alaska region ConocoPhillips Willow Project, five drill sites that promised an estimated 600 million barrels of oil over the next 30 years. President Biden's massive pay hike for feds as the nation teeters on the brink of recession, thanks in large measure to the president and the massive spending splurges pushing inflation to a 40 year high. The president is seeking to insulate federal employees from his mismanagement. He proposed a federal pay raise for all federal employees. Well, coming up, we're going to have a conversation with Barb Raveling. She's the author of Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating. That's coming up for the next couple of segments, and we'll uh, bring you up to date on what's happened with Coach Kennedy, who has been officially reinstated at Bremerton High School. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Barb Raveling, she struggled with emotional eating for 25 years. Now, I know none of us can relate to that, so this will be completely surprising to you. Not so much. It felt like the one stronghold she would a stronghold rather that she would simply never overcome. Well, that was until God taught her a life changing discipline that helped her finally end the cycle of emotional eating, the renewing of the mind. Well, in her uh, her book, Raveling uh, inspires readers to join her on the journey of transformation that um, will help them lose weight, but also grow closer to Christ. Uh, the book is simply uh, titled Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating, 100 Renewing Exercises to Help You Break Free from the Control of Food. 
Now, my guest, uh, Barb Raveling, is a podcaster. She's an author of seven books and Bible studies in the areas of personal growth. Her top-ranked podcast, Taste for Truth, and the Christian Habits podcast have earned over a million downloads and continue to inspire people to break free from their strongholds and grow closer to God. She writes from her own experience and her education as an executive Christian coach certified through Coach Approach Ministries. Nearly 150,000 copies of her books have been sold. She joins us today to talk about the latest to help us say goodbye to emotional eating. Barb Raveling, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's let's begin to to talk about what it means to be an emotional eater. What is that what does that mean? Emotional eating is eating in response to your emotions rather than just eating at meal times or eating when you're hungry. So we might eat when we're depressed or we're worried or we're stressed out, or we might eat also even when we're like celebrating or happy and we just want to go have some, some fun food. Is it necessarily a bad thing or does it reveal something about us that we should probably be a little bit concerned about? Well, it wouldn't have to be a bad thing. It kind of depends on how much of a problem it is. Uh, People who don't ever struggle with, like, their weight, they usually just have certain boundaries they don't even think about. They just eat at meals or they eat when they're hungry. But when we're eating in response to our emotions, you know, things go fine when life is good. But when life is hard, we're usually eating a lot more than is good for us. So it causes some problems with our weight, and that can cause some problems with our our health and uh, affect our emotions. So then it's a, a hard struggle if that's what's happening. You began a journey to heal uh, from emotional eating. Tell us a bit of your story. Well, I was an emotional eater probably for 25, 30 years. It started in school, and I'd binge at night. I'd stuff myself. I'd wake up in the morning with regret. And I, this was the one thing in my life I thought I'd just never get over it because I tried to lose weight. I wouldn't be able to follow a diet. So I'd be good maybe until about four o'clock and then I'd start eating the rest of the night. So it was just really discouraging and demoralizing. But then I learned what the renewing of the mind was. And I learned what that was like on a practical level and how it could change both our desires and our emotions. And when I started applying what I learned about the renewing of the mind in other areas of my life to my problem with emotional eating, that's when I finally broke free and it's been about 15, over 15 years now that I've been free and I, I no longer do the yo-yo dieting thing. Mm-hmm. Are there spiritual or more significant implications uh, to our tendency to eat out of emotion rather than hunger or need? Well, there could be because what was happening with me is I would go to food for the quick fix whenever I had problems. And so by turning to food and getting that instant release, I didn't go to God, and God wanted me to go to Him because He had things He wanted to mm-hmm. teach me through all those trials and ways He wanted to mature me. So I missed out on all that by by going to food. Let's talk about what this book is not. This isn't a series of recipes to follow, a diet plan. This really does focus on the, the heart of the issue, the cause of emotional eating, and uh, what we need to turn to um, away from food that will sustain us. That's right. The book can be used alongside any weight loss plan or maintenance plan. 
And what it is is hunter renewing exercises that you can do in the moment. So when you're tempted to break your boundaries, you can do one of these renewing exercises and it will make you actually want to follow your boundaries. It actually changes your desires. Now, you made mention of boundaries. We know how to apply boundaries in other areas of life. But when it comes to emotional eating, describe what a boundary might look like that would help us to have control over this area of emotional eating. Well, if you think of a school fence, a fence of a playground, a boundary protects the kids. The fence protects the kids, protects them from running out into the street and getting you know, hurt by a car. And the same way food boundaries protect us. So my boundaries are three meals a day. So I only eat three meals a day with no second helping. And that keeps me from emotional eating. At least once you can renew your mind so you can actually follow whatever boundaries that you have set out. And you can also have like weight loss boundaries of somebody might be on Weight Watchers or they might be doing a, a keto sort of thing. So basically a boundary is just something you put in place that kind of says, okay, this is how much I'm going to eat or how often. You mentioned that at the height of your struggles with emotional eating, you were experiencing a lot of challenges in your life. Is this common? And how would you encourage other women who are also turning to food in those difficult moments? I would encourage you to start a renewing of the mind habit. It's, uh, it's so life-changing. It changed my life more than anything else other than Bible reading, I would say. Because what it does is it gives you a way to take what you learn in the Bible and apply it to your life in a practical way. And at least from my viewpoint, I don't think I could have broken free from the control of food if I hadn't put in that effort renewing my mind. Because I I didn't have enough self-control to do it by self-control alone. Well, renewing your mind, that's a phrase that we are familiar with from scriptures. But talk a little bit about how that principle can apply to this area of life as well. Well, one of the ways I have to renew the mind in the book is something I call truth journaling. And with truth journaling, what you do is you write down um, five things you're believing that are making you eat or five lies they are making you eat. And I have, the, I have them in the book, so I've already done that part for them. I've written down five things. And then you look at each one and you say, is this true? And then you write the full truth in it. So, so we're just saying, okay, what am I believing? I'm believing that this will make me feel better or... I'll start tomorrow, or I've already blown it, I might as well keep eating, or um, that's so great, I should have another. So we believe all these things that people who never struggle with food, they don't believe, and that's why they don't eat too much, but we believe them. So we have to have a practical way to change what we believe, because when we start believing the truth, then we're going to actually start to want to follow our boundaries. How difficult was it for you once you understood the principle of renewing the mind as applied to emotional eating? Was it something that um, clicked in right away? Did it take a, a period of time? How was it for you? It, it was still hard. Um, it was a lot harder than what I was, the first one I worked on, which was letting go of resentment. It took me a couple years just to get to the point where I could consistently make myself renew because a lot of times we don't want to renew because we know if we renew, we're going to change our desires. We're not going to want to eat. Everything within us is driving us to eat. So once, once I made the commitment, I really am going to renew every time I feel like breaking my boundaries. But then I think it only took a couple months before I really started kicking in and following my boundaries. But it takes a while to get to the point where you can make that commitment and follow through where I'm going to renew my mind every time I feel like breaking my boundaries. You write that emotional eating can lead to living by desire instead of living by design. Explain what that means. 
Well, most of us want to eat what we want when we want. That's mm-hmm. kind of what we think is a good life. Uh, and that's living by desire. And that only works if you're a person who doesn't desire more food than is good for you. So living by design is like I say, okay, this is, this is what's best for me. I'm going to eat three meals a day. That's the best for my life overall. And I've designed it in a ra- rational moment. And then I follow it. So instead of living by desire, like, oh, I feel like having uh, five bowls of ice cream this afternoon. I don't indulge in my feelings. I say no. Uh, I can only eat three meals a day. So, so, so that so you're kind of designing the life you want. Uh, then we don't have the willpower to follow that life we design. So then we have to renew our mind to be able to follow, have the willpower to follow the design. We're talking with Barb Rattling. She is the author of "Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating: 100 Renewed Exercises to Help You Break Free from the Control of Food," which is a, an epidemic in our culture today. We're going to continue that conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, the book is published by Harvest House. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Barb Raveling. She is a podcaster and author of seven books and Bible studies in the area of personal growth. Today, we're talking about one of them, Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating, 100 Renewing Exercises to Help You Break Free from the Control of Food. And oh, how many of us need to have that freedom. How can your relationship, and you write about this, uh, with food impact your relationship with Christ? Um, I think renewing my mind impacted my relationship with Christ. I don't know that food did as much because I was still really close to God, even when I was uh, emotional eating. So I don't really think it affected my relationship with God. It did affect uh, my maturity. So how much I matured in the area I was weakness in weekend and that he wanted me to, uh, you know, grow in. But, but as I started turning to him for help with it and actually talking over life with him and going to him to get over it, that really made me closer to him. So it did affect it in that way. And I, I suppose maturing along the way as we bring into control some of these areas that we lack control in. Now, what are some of the simple ways that you can choose not to overeat in a moment of temptation? And our our world is um, full of temptations where uh, somebody brings something to the office or the Bible study, there's a treat or uh, we're late night, we're alone, we're perhaps bored and something in our mouth sounds really good when we're not paying much attention. What are some simple ways that you can choose not to overeat in a moment of temptation? Well, I use both practical and spiritual and on the spiritual side, I would try to renew my mind before the temptation hits so that you're short up with truth before it hits. But then on a practical level, you know, like I have my husband, if I ever get have chocolate peanut butter granola in the house, I have him hide it from me because I know I don't have the self-control for it. In fact, I have him hide it even as soon as I pour myself a bowl. Otherwise, I'll have a second bowl. So there's just little things like that. You try to make it harder for temptation to hit. When I go on walks, I live really close to a yummy bakery. I don't take my credit card. There's sometimes even people who rule out sweets completely. That actually makes it easier because it's easier to have none than one. Or you might say, I never have sweets at work. So either have your sweets in limited locations or just rule them out altogether or, or your problem foods, chips, whatever it is. Those are some things that can help. Yeah, because we are surrounded by temptation. And what you just described sounds to me like the boundaries that you talked about earlier, setting boundaries with food. 
Right. Yeah. I, I talked about primary boundaries and that was like the three meals a day or eat only when you're hungry or a diet. But secondary boundaries you put in place to help you follow your primary boundaries. So a secondary boundary for me would I can't be I can't have the peanut butter and granola in the house unless my husband hides it. So so you kind of look at, OK, where am I breaking? Where am I breaking my boundaries? Is there anything I can do in a practical level to help with that? Does it get easier over time or is it always a struggle? Oh, no, it gets far easier. So I'd say before, for me, it was a, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was a 10. And I just never thought I could control it. And now it's maybe like a 2 on a scale of 1 to 10 and consistently a 2. So it's it's not like the struggle ever goes away. with new, When new trials come into my life, I'm still tempted to over emotionally eat. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I break my boundaries. But it's just, it's just not even a big it's not a big thing in my life anymore like it used to be. Yeah. You mentioned that for some, uh, weight loss is the goal. For others, it's just improving one's health. So many people struggle to find weight loss strategies that not only help them lose the weight, but also to keep it off. What piece of advice would you give and you wish you had at the start of your journey? Well, I'm afraid I'll sound like a broken record, but I think the secret to keeping it off is you've got to change the way you think about it. So we're not just controlling behavior, we're controlling thoughts. So if you change the way you think of all those thoughts that are trying to get you to eat more than is good for you, those are the thoughts you have to change at the core level. And and so the advice I give is put some effort into it. I actually wrote this book to make it easier to develop a renewing the mind habit because I know how hard it is. But uh, put effort up front, just like an engineer puts effort into his college education to reap the benefits later. We put effort into renewing our minds to reap the benefits later. You divide the book into two sections, one on foundations, the other renewing exercises. And in one of the sections you have, I don't feel like following my boundaries, which I suppose is fairly common when you're on a, a long journey that ultimately um, gets you to where you want to go, but may take longer and be more difficult than you expect. Describe how you see the book being used by someone who is uh, looking to renew their mind as they struggle through this area. Well, they can read the beginning of the book just for the foundation. They can go back and reference that beginning of the book. So I have a lot of examples of truths mm-hmm. and how to do the exercises. But that, that the second part of the book has five different sections. And you just, you could ask, you can either just do them one by one. You can just open them up. And, you know, some people do like two or three a day and they'll just do the next one in the book. Or you could say, okay, what am I struggling with? Am I saying, uh, is it an emotional thing? Like, I feel like I need chocolate. Usually that's some sort of emotional problem, or I might feel like I'll never get over this. There's a whole section on that. Uh, there's a whole section. I'm feeling like you have to be skinny. That's another thing we have to let go of this idea that we have to be skinny. And then the one you referenced, I feel like breaking my boundaries. So you just say, okay, which section am I in? And then just, uh, there's a whole bunch of exercises. You'll be able to re- read the titles of them and you'll relate to them and just choose one that seems like it'll work. And then just get your pen out. You can do the exercises right in the book and do one of those exercises. One of your appendixes is uh, titled, I don't want to renew my mind. (laughs) Can you address that? Because we may (laughs) wrestle with that very thing. Yes, because here's the problem. It's hard to make ourselves follow our food boundaries, but it's also hard to make ourselves renew our mind. So in some ways in the beginning, put your effort into renewing your mind about the renewing the mind. And that appendix, that's one of those uh, exercises in the book. Because we have to believe in the process. We have to see that uh, not only is it worth it to renew our mind, but that, you know, we need to. Because a lot of times we think, oh, this should be easier. I can't believe I'm struggling with this after all these years. I shouldn't be struggling with it. 
So we kind of have to get into this mindset, you know what, it is going to take work. I need to put in the work. It's worth the work and, and the work in renewing. So not just the work in exercises, not in the work in following the plan, but the work in renewing and changing our thoughts. That's just as important, if not more so. That's the foundation. I mentioned in the introduction that you are a podcaster. You're the author of seven books. Um, how can our listeners connect with you on this subject or, or other uh, areas that you provide teaching in? Uh, you can go to barbraveling.com and find uh, all my resources there. I have the Taste for Truth podcast, which is a Christian weight loss podcast, and also the Christian Habits podcast. So, And also on YouTube. I also have a YouTube channel. So those are all ways to connect. And where can they find your podcasts? Uh, any podcast app. So okay. whatever your podcast app is. Or you could just go to my website and you can listen to it right at my website. Or ask, ask Amazon Alexa. Ask Alexa to play it for you. <laughs> Amazon Alexa. <laughs> she knows everything. <laughs> she knows everything. <laughs> well, this is such a, a practical and helpful um, guide to say goodbye to emotional eating. I think it is so common Uh, particularly among women, but certainly not exclusively. And we struggle so often with how to put the fork down when it tastes so good and we're in the midst of a challenge. Uh, Again, this is very practical. You help us to kind of walk through what does it mean um, to... um, uh, to renew the mind and what does it mean not to give in to the emotional eating and how to set boundaries. I so appreciate uh, the book that you have written and would encourage our listeners who are struggling in this area to consider this resource to help discipline in this area that can only bear fruit that I think uh, in the long run you'll be pleased with. So Barb, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the book is uh, titled Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating, 100 Renewing Exercises to Help You Break Free from the Control of Food. I'm not going to tell you that I'm taking this book home and I'm going to study it because I might from time to time find a potato chip or a cookie when I'm not really hungry, but I'm tired and bored. Anyway, I won't tell you that, but I am taking the book home. All right. Up next, we're going to talk about Coach Kennedy. Remember the Washington state coach who went all the way to the Supreme Court? Well, he has been officially reinstated. We'll tell you more of his story in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things to let you know coming up this week. We're going to have a conversation with James Rosen. He has written a book on Scalia, Rise to Greatness. I'm looking forward to that conversation on the now-deceased Supreme Court Justice. The book is published by Regnery. That's coming up on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we have a Radiothon. We'll tell you more about that uh, later in the week, but looking forward to the opportunity to minister to and come alongside the persecuted church. That's coming up on Thursday on the program. Well, months after winning at the U.S. Supreme Court, Joe Kennedy, he's a public high school assistant football coach in Washington state who was dismissed for praying on the field after games has finally been reinstated. Now, you might recall the coach uh, did not invite his um, players to join him on the field to pray, but some did so voluntarily. In fact, some Uh, Team members from opposing teams and their coaches joined him voluntarily. Well, Coach Kennedy, who the Bremerton School District punished for praying on the field after games in 2015, has been reinstated as a football coach, the legal group First Liberty Institute said in a statement last week. 
2015. This is 2023. Says um, the group's executive general counsel, Hiram Sasser, we are thrilled that Bremerton and Coach Kennedy are back together and we hope they go undefeated, end quote. Well, as a devout Christian, Kennedy maintained a practice of going to the 50-yard line after games and kneeling in prayer, often with fans and players joining him. He didn't invite them. He didn't gesture to them. They just joined him voluntarily. Well, a joint stipulation filed to uh, in court rather last October by attorneys representing Kennedy and Bremerton School District stated that the coach would be reinstated to his former position as an assistant coach by March 15th, 2023. Well, the school district initially suspended Coach Kennedy for refusing to stop praying on the field. The school district believed that his prayer violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But the Supreme Court said no. Kennedy sued the school district back in 2016, accusing it of violating his religious freedom. In 2017, a three-court, uh, a three-judge panel rather of the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against the coach And the U.S. Supreme Court initially refused to hear an appeal in the case in 2019. Again, this all started in 2015 and we're in 2023. In March of 2021, a three-judge circuit court panel again ruled against Kennedy. In January of last year, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear Kennedy's case. A month later, the school district filed a request to dismiss the case by claiming that the case was moot because Kennedy moved to Florida. However, Kennedy's legal team clarified that the coach temporarily relocated to care for a sick family member. So last June, the justices ruled in Kennedy's favor with a 6-3 decision. Coach Kennedy prayed during a period when school employees were free to speak with a friend, call for a reservation at a restaurant, check email or attend to other personal matters. He offered his prayers quietly while his students were otherwise occupied. Still, the Bremerton School District disciplined him anyway. That's what Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote for the majority opinion. Both the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment protect expressions like Mr. Kennedy's. The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance. Mutual respect and tolerance. I have a vague recollection of when they were cherished broadly in our culture. He went on, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. Well, Coach Kennedy responded to his victory, saying that all he wanted was to be back on the field with his guys. Well, in 2015, those kids are gone. There's a whole new batch of football players today. I'm incredibly grateful to the Supreme Court for my fantastic legal team, he went on to say. And everyone who has supported us, he said in a statement, I thank God for answering our prayers and sustaining my family through this long battle. And one of the things I want to commend the coach for having done was well, hanging in there. It all began, as I mentioned earlier, in 2015. That's a very long time ago. But he was uh, determined to continue to press for the freedom to pray. And again, this was um, a prayer that... He chose uh, uh, chose to engage in on his own. He was joined by others, uh, some uh, people who were just there watching the game, some players, other coaches, other uh, family members, and so on. So uh, the good news is uh, he has been reinstated as of uh, this month, as the court required, and he will be back in his role uh, coaching players. So I'm grateful to um, to be able to announce um, to announce that. 
and that uh, Coach Kennedy is back doing what he longed to do. I mentioned earlier that coming up on uh, Wednesday, a conversation with James Rosen. He has been a um, an on-air commentator for quite some time. You may have seen him in the past. In any case, he has written a book on um, the late Justice Scalia. The book is titled Rise to Greatness, and he's going to uh, join us to talk about um, the uh, justice, the Supreme Court justice, his early life, as well as his ascension to the U.S. Supreme Court and what made his contribution to the court uh, so um, timely and needful in the country. So uh, he'll be my guest on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, uh, we have a radiothon with the IRC. It's an organization that is ministering to the persecuted church. And we're looking forward to um, uh, we're looking forward to having a conversation about that and how you and I can come alongside and support this ministry uh, that coming up on Thursday. Well, we're just about out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And again, if you're interested in Barb uh, Raveling's uh, book, Say Goodbye to Emotional Eating, you can find uh, find more on her website, and I would encourage you to do that where details Uh, can be found on how to uh, take advantage of this renewing of the mind in the area of emotional eating. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.